0: This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. Our guest this week is Daniel Jack, who works as a lawyer in the Youth Crime Division of Victorian Legal Aid. Daniel grew up in a Kenyan refugee camp after his family fled the war in South Sudan. His parents are remarkable and resilient people, and they were determined that Daniel would build a life beyond the camps and fulfil his early academic promise. So, at 13, Daniel left his parents and came to Adelaide with his older sister Rebecca, a Grade 4 education and very little English. Daniel's clan, values, work ethic and vision have always guided him and in 2017 those values led him to Melbourne where he saw a huge need for African representation in our criminal justice system.
1: If if I'm in court, people in my community are also represented across a legal fraternity and obviously we've got a long way to go, but to be able to see people like me, and we'll give them some confidence and, and hope in the system, you know, that the system works for everyone, and you know it doesn't uh, doesn't favour any particular group.
2: Daniel, good afternoon, and welcome to Lives in the Law.
1: Good afternoon, Michael.
2: You've got a fascinating story to tell, not just about your life in the law, but about your life in general, your whole life. And so let's dive into this fascinating story by painting a little bit of the background and then you can tell us. You are South Sudanese. Your parents were born in South Sudan, but they fled during the Civil War and ultimately, finished in Kenya in a camp, and you you were born maybe not in Kenya. You came to Kenya when you were a baby.
1: So, yeah, Michael, so I was born, so after my parents had fled uh, Sarsidane, so they um, they settled in Ethiopia, and then it was in Ethiopia, that's when I was born in a place called Pinyadook, and then uh, my parents shortly after I was born uh, fled into, uh, again, fled, fled, fled another war in Ethiopia and fled into Kenya, and that's where I... Uh, up until arriving here in Australia.
2: So, your parents went from South Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya. Tell us about growing up in a camp, I mean, dis- can you describe the camp to us? Yeah, I can. H- how many people in this camp?
1: I think I think the the, the, the figures uh, appears to be in, in the hundreds of thousands, so third the large number and certainly my uh, recollection certain of it is that... Uh, within the zone, there, there, there were large numbers of people and uh, and as is, you is sort of, you know, I Evan as a kid, you is, is sort of travel through the camp if you want to go watch, like say if your zone or your, your group, uh, which is so sort of the equivalent of a suburb, uh, if, if that suburb was playing or, or region was playing another region within the camp, you know, you sort of got to see uh, how, how big the camp was and, uh, and how many people were there. Growing up there was sort of, you know, as a kid, the uh, The routine was sort of, you know, if, you, if, well, I'll go to kindergarten in the morning and then uh, normally we'll finish school around like midday, you come home uh, and then you sort of, because uh, dad be out of home, was Mom, home a lot of the time, you sort of, you drop your books and then you go play with other kids and, and that was sort of a, and that sort of continued on even when I left kindergarten and went into primary school and, yeah, so it's a, uh,
2: you, you say go to school. Who were the teachers at this school? Other South Sudanese people, or aid workers, or who were the teachers?
1: I think the majority of them were Kenyan background, like so actual Kenyan citizens who who had been trained and were qualified to teach. And there were those within the camps who had, migra- had migrated from Sudan with some sort of formal uh, qualification to teach. So yeah, it was a mixture of uh, South Sudanese Kenyans. I'm not sure if I can remember Anglo, but I'm pretty sure there would have been some capacity for those you know, who, uh, who, who travel from the West to, to work at these camps to teach of their wars.
2: Now, with your education at all, you got off to a flying start with uh, your education in the camp. Yes. <laughs> but you hit a bit of a hurdle there at some stage. Can you tell us a bit about what the education was and
1: this hurdle that you hit? From, from early start in kindergarten, uh, you know, we were taught um, like uh, the alphabetical, uh, letters and, and numbers just sort of the basics and I think the first the first time I sort of got a sense you know, that I was capable you know was when I topped my kindergarten class and and, and, the, and the headmaster or, or the principal in charge of the kindergarten in the camp attended at my parents house you know with, with presents and give that was sort of the first sign of me knowing you know, that oh, I can do stuff but shortly after that I went into primary school and, uh, and the life in the camp, you know, after school, you get together with mates and cousins and you just go and play. And there were no formal, you know, at home, there weren't books at home. As soon as it got dark, it got dark. There weren't lights, you know, so it wasn't, and there's was no libraries within the groups. So it wasn't after you left school, there was nothing there to reinforce, to enforce you to do your homework. I sort of dropped off in from year one all the way through to year four and, in fact, ended up repeating year four.
2: So you had to repeat year four. In what language were they? Teaching you?
1: So we were taught taught in English, so they'll teach you stuff like math, sign, religion, geography, and Swahili, which is the Kenyan local language. Because within groups and within the camp, you're sort of living among your tribes. So even if you're after class, I'll I'll be speaking to my friends and relatives in Dinka, and that sort of carry on after we left class. Did you
2: you learn English? I mean, if they're teaching most of the curriculum in English, it would be a help if you spoke English. Did you speak English? No, no. So you're in the camp, you live there until you're 13, and at that age you and your sister Rebecca come to Australia. You know, obviously children of that age don't come to Australia. There's got to be someone... um, Masterminding the situation to get you to Australia.
1: Yes. How did that happen? So, uh, one of my uncle, Abraham, is uh, academically when he when he was going through the schooling system in Kakuma, he did he did well in the in the primary school certificate, and he got a scholarship to go complete high school in a boarding school in Kenya, which he did. So he would have uh, he would have been like so, do the equivalent of the top one percent in the state in Victoria, and he was sponsored by the Australian government. Uh, to come to Australia for uh, for for university studies, and it's when he left in two thousand two to come to Australia. Uh, that's when Dad asked him, like Daniel, Daniel, or Rebecca, Daniel's my only son. It'd be great if you could once you uh, if you could sponsor him, so he can go overseas you know, and have access to the opportunities to, to to go to university, and that's what Abraham did. Obviously, so
2: your dad played a big part in it, and from what you have said, your dad was a leader within the community in the camp? Correct. And even now, I guess, back in South Sudan. So can you tell us a bit about your dad and the role that he played with, within the camp when you were a child?
1: Uh, so he is, uh, is a tribal elder. When there's any issues within within the family or within within the tribe or dispute between our clan and another clan, you know, he's called upon to, uh, ta- to uh, tailor resolve the dispute, you know, or if it's a clan against another clan, and then, you know, he's called upon to advocate. You know, so if, if if there's conflict and, and people are hurt, you know, or, or to prevent conflict, you know, people like that and other elders, you know, from that other tribe, you know, sort of convene, you know, like we call an emergency, emergency meeting, and, and and trying to put that to an end. So your dad sounds like in our uh,
2: society here in Victoria, a combination of a judge, a senior barrister, a mediator, all of those sorts of roles elders in tribes play and your dad is an elder of the clan that you're a part of.
1: Yeah, yeah that's a clan. And
2: so he's, uh, you're following in your dad's footsteps being a lawyer yourself.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, no, I, uh, it, it's funny because you know, some members of my community, I mean, you know, still, uh, still question as to whether, you know, I've, I've reached his side yet, you know.
2: So, Daniel, you're 13, you leave Kenya and come to Australia with your sister Rebecca, who is 23. You live with your uncle Abraham in Adelaide, and he's been given instructions and full authority by your parents to look after you and to be responsible for you. He clearly is a remarkable person, and and it's a remarkable system that enables this to work and work so well. Can you tell us about life as a teenager living in Abraham's household and the routines and the expectations that were upon you?
1: So I um, so I, I arrived uh, in Adelaide it, uh, took a while to a wider settle, but it you know, from... I think only a couple of days after that, two or three days after that, we sort of got into the routine of things. And, you know, Abraham sort of took the lead. So from uh, from taking me and my sister to our first sort of appointment to meet service providers, like being the, the standard link, yeah. uh, also going to Medicare and then uh, going to school, uh, to the Secondary school of English to, to enroll, which is a language school for nearly-arrived migrants. And also we had, you know, because the community... You know, at that time, there was starting to be influx of Sardinians, migrants. So we had a lot of visitors uh, during that time. But once I, once 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 I settled and uh, I started school.
2: When you say school, you spent the first year in an English
1: language school
2: yes. to learn English.
1: Yeah. So so uh, I went to I like secondary school of English in in Tonsville, and I was living in Greenacre, So I had to catch two buses uh, to get to the school. So I catch a bus into the city and then from the city into the school and then back home you know right, I'll get home I'll get to meet, do homework watch the Simpson and then you know have dinner and then do homework and then nine, nine nine o'clock I was in bed and Abraham will also sit you know at that time he was doing his engineering degree at University of South Australia so he'll sit down with me he's doing his work and I'm doing my math and you know my, my all my homework and he'll sort of you know if I had a question he'll guide me through it and I sort of and then on a Saturday morning as well, again, we'll, we'll get up. There'll be duties to clean the house, you know, I'll be allocated to do the toilet. And then uh, after that again, you know, Abraham, will, you know, will ask me to do my homework of the weekend and he'll sort of supervise while he does his...
2: uh his... studying for his degree? Yep. Am I right in assuming that it was early and um, strongly impressed upon you by your parents and by Abraham how privileged you were to get the opportunity to come and get an education and therefore you're expected to make the most of it and work hard to get the best education you could.
1: Well, there's, there's I think from uh, from from initially when Dad asked Abraham to uh, to sponsor us, you know, when he came here, because uh, there's, I'm the only, so I had six, I, I had five siblings, six including me, my sister Rebecca, who's, yeah, she's the oldest, and four, four, four of my siblings have passed away, so there's me and my sister. And uh, technically, in our, in our Dinka culture, because my sister gets married, you know, she moves on to, uh, to her husband's tribe, so she moves on to that family. So I'm not in, in in that sense, like I'm the only son, and Dad really, you could foresee, you know, if, if I came, you know, I, I made the most of it opportunities available, yeah, and went to university, how an indication, like, could could be the missing family members I have because, you know, yeah. oh, I'll have, you know, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll be able to sort of provide for myself, you know, and also for the for the rest of the extended family. You know, and when we left the camp, there were tapes made, so we had a whole sort of going west ceremony and, and, and it was, and during that ceremony, you know, not only Dad spoke, you know, at least of our communities including relatives and family members, spoke, and there was an emphasis that, you know, we're going to go to university. It's going to be foreign. There's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be good and bad bids, Yeah, but pick, you know, take the good bids.
2: Now, you do a year at the English Language School, and then you start in year nine at the Ross Smith High School. Now, If I've got my um, chronology correct, when you left the camp in Kenya, you were at grade four level. Correct. Having failed it once already. Yeah. You come to Australia, you do 12 months at language school to to pick up on the English and then you go into year nine at Ross Smith. That's remarkable. How did you bridge that gap?
1: I think the schooling in the camp sort of set some grant workers to you know, although I was pretty poor through from year one to year four, you know I, I didn't, I never finished in the top ten or top twenty. Uh, but I think i um, having the right year and, and having someone like Abraham, you know, who's very excellent in what he does, you know, and had come here you know, on that basis because it was scored, uh, he did cheap in the Kenyan second school examination, uh, sort of made it uh, made it easy. So you know he puts in a lot of time to help me with, with chemistry maths and, and, and English, but well, my school teachers you know, were able to back me and say, you know, Dan, Dan, Daniel's one of our best students, so, you know, he, you know, I should be fine and, and, and surely, uh, you know, it, first time it was, you know, it was a bit difficult, uh, but, you know, I didn't start off too bad and uh, straight after that you know, I, I, I find myself getting straight A's.
2: Now, you didn't stay very long at the Ross Smith High School, only for about one year and then you completed your secondary education at um, one of the most prestigious private boys' schools in Adelaide, Prince Alfred College. How did, how did a Dinka boy coming from a camp in Kenya who <laughs> failed grade four and went into year nine get himself into Prince Alfred College to finish his secondary schooling?
1: Well, I think it was a bit of fortune. So so I was at Rossmith Secondary College from halfway through year nine and all of year 10. There's another, uh, another, another, another kid, uh, Chinese background, his, his name's Tony Wang, he now works a CSIRO and he's, uh, he's a chemical engineer and currently completing his PhD at University of Adelaide. So Yunzi or, or Tony, it's, it started at Ross Smith and he, uh, English is his second language, but, but it was good, uh, he's, he's smart academically and he, he was also good, he was a good footballer as well and played basketball. And uh, there was a couple of occasions when he was, he'd been picked on mm-hmm. and I sort of stepped in, you know, and I got into a fight as a result of him uh, being being bullied and, and from there on we sort of became aides.
2: Did you learn to fight in the camps in Kenya?
1: Yeah, I did. You know, it was if someone started on you, like not also getting involved, you sort of left, you know, to your own devices to sort of settle your own problem. So you had and to I learn said, to
2: stand up for yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah but, but having said that, you know... Uh, Abraham and, and my parents, you know, on, on a couple of occasions when I did get into a fight and I was suspended, there were consequences and, uh, and, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't impressed and, you know, it was something that they condemned. But out of that, you know, came a relationship with Tony and Tony was bright, you know, he is a straight A student, obviously, you know, sort of knew what opportunities were available out there and he, him himself was, was applying for scholarship to, to school up Prince Alfred and all, all the private schools in Adelaide and he asked me, he said, Daniel, I'm doing this, you know, I think you should do it. So I uh, I jumped on board and I, I applied for the school and um, when I was growing up in Adelaide I used to go to the Lord Greneckers United Church every morning and John and Liz Pritavilla who family at, who went to that church was sort of became sort of my family friends and sort of became my Australian parents. What I didn't know about John is that, you know, he went, he went to Prince's. Uh, and when I, uh, when I applied for a scholarship, uh, the, the criteria was that you were a straight-A student and you came from a disadvantaged background as well and that you could also get some sort of support letters from people who knew So I got a support letter from the church, from the United Church, and I think that also in itself uh, sort of helped in that and the fact John and Liz, you know, had played a role my life from the early stage from that. From
2: you said, I think, I read somewhere that um, they were like foster parents for you here in Australia, you yeah, know Well, well
1: they're, they're, they're the only people who sort of who appreciate, you know, what it means to have a birthday. So, you know, it's, it's not a really thing in our family home, with Abraham and Rebecca, you know, birthday wasn't a thing or Christmas wasn't a thing. But on my birthday period, you know, I'll have, I'll have you know, child my birthday will be celebrated. I'll get present from people like Liz, and also over Christmas, I'll be invited to their Christmas parties, and, and, and that sort of helped me in, integrate into, into, the, into the Australian,
2: into Australian society. Yeah. How did it come about that you studied law? You, you finished your year 12 at Prince Alfred College. Um, I haven't seen your results, but they must have been excellent for you to be admitted into law school.
1: Why law? Well, Michael, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't start a law school straight away, so I uh, I went and did engineering. And the reason I'd done that is because I'd been living with Abraham and Abraham was doing engineering and a lot of his peers spoke very highly of him. And I sort of, you know, I, uh, yet looking back, you know, I sort of I took the view, you know, I get the respect that he gets, so I went and did engineering. But uh, at, at that time, you know, now I was 18 and I sort of, you know, I started I started to appreciate to Dad regularly and I started to hear some of the stories of some of the work Dad did, which we touched on earlier, and it was from there I said, well, you know, if I follow any of Dad's uh, trait or, or, or some of his integrity, you know, it's a uh, Western legal education. would really go a massive way to, to following in his footsteps you know, and, and taking further what he did, and, and, and there came law school.
0: William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community.
2: So Daniel, you give up engineering and you go to law school at Flinders University in Adelaide. You obviously graduate and you ultimately wind up working for Victorian Legal Aid here in Melbourne. But in the meantime, you worked in commercial law for Thomson Gear, a large commercial national firm. How did you move from that into doing legal aid criminal work and how did you move from Adelaide to Melbourne? What drove these major changes in your career path?
1: Having I mean, gone to Prince Arthur College, you know, and then sort of, you know, use sort of those sort of networks. I've ended up at Thompson Gear. I was there for a few months. Like I said, you know, I wanted to be like Dad. At a place like Thompson Gear, the, the opportunity sort of to be in court, and one of the strengths I heard about Dad a lot of the time was it was his ability to, to speak, to, to persuade so I, I left Thompson Gear looking for opportunities to advocate and and, and sort of be on my feet. And, and criminal law sort of offered that. You know, I started seeing the constant media coverage, African youth crime, and you know, and sort of you know, and saw the need you know of, of Sydney's lawyers, you know, or African lawyers, you know, uh, in Melbourne. And I sort of made the call. And this this is an opportunity for me, you know, to to, to not only do you know, uh, be on my feet and sort of do what Dad does, but, but get back to the community whether they're young people I've sort of grown up with, or people who were born here or came here a bit younger than me, or even all the members of our community who might not be able to speak English, but would really, you know, be assisted by my servers you know, and, and just having the opportunity to be able to explain to them the court processes in Dinka. And at the time, through my network, I sort of knew that there weren't any the Sydney's criminal defence lawyers you know, around the traps uh, in, in, in the Melbourne Magist Court and the suburban court as well as the children's court, so I got in touch with uh with Cotmanah, who's who's at the time was the chairman of the Sarsfields Community Association in Victoria, and through that, you know, I uh, I landed a gig on Queen Street, and I I packed up and came to Melbourne working for Papa Hughes. Yeah, so I, I did 14 months working for Andrew before I before I jumped ship to to Aid. I could see I could see the numbers, you know. Sort of Sydney's African people coming through the courts, and I, 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 said to myself, you know, I need to be a place at legal, like Legal Aid. They're the biggest criminal operator in the state. You know, they're sort of your large, largest criminal defence firm, if you want to put it that way. You know, although they do other areas of law, and I, and I, I, said, you know, if if I'm in, if I'm at Legal Aid, you know, I'm able to sort of uh, to not only be in court on my feet, you know, doing the work for my client. Uh, but sort of to, to be able to advocate uh, for the people you know from from our community
2: and people who would have little or no knowledge of the system our legal our legal system and therefore need someone who both understands our legal system and understands them and where they are coming from
1: I think yeah so like legal aid is an organization you know it comes comes to the party when the state you know and, and people like Victoria please talk about how to address issues affecting the communities you know, and, and how to reduce uh, this sort of offending, they'll to have an input where if, if I was at Papa Hughes, that doesn't really happen. You know? yeah. So if if I'm a legal aid and I'm a concerned as to why there's so many assassinated kids you know, coming through the system, you know, I, I can advocate to, to my uh, manager or my program manager. And
2: legal aid can raise the issue with the Victorian police or the Attorney-General's Department Correct. or people in in positions of power and authority who can, in fact, affect policy. You've got a a nine-to-five job, which obviously wouldn't be nine-to-five, might be eight till six or who knows when, at Legal Aid. But on top of that, you've taken on voluntary positions with um, community legal education and also I think you've co-founded the African-Australian Legal Network. How to, could maybe the African Australian Legal Network particularly is interesting? How does it work? Is it purely a support group for African Australian lawyers or has it got a, a larger objective than that? Why did you do this?
1: So, me, me and a couple of uh, practitioners, Nyadol uh, Nyon and Rutando Muchingiri, who's currently doing a reader's cause. So, she's, she's joined Victorian Bar. Yeah, during the bar, yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, qualified in the network and, and it came out just to take you back a step. So in, in 2015, I, I came to Melbourne and one of the regular thing I'd do every time i go into state, uh, i I'll, I'll make time to go into the courtroom and i will walk into the Supreme Courtroom mm-hmm. and pretend it was an associate at the time and there's a matter, uh, there's a commercial matter and when the matter was stood down, I, 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 I approach her and I smacked her and I, I said, my name's Daniel Lloyd uh, Thompson-Gear, but I thought intention to, to move to Melbourne in the future, some state, and we sort of, we exchanged contacts and we kept that uh, I kept that network and that relationship going. But I also sort of, uh, through social media, also connected with Yard Dool. And then once I moved to Melbourne, I sort of, I put the two together and I said, you know, this is what I was thinking. And both of them were like, okay, that's what we'd be thinking as well. Cause we all had work, but we, we, we had friends uh, and colleagues find it difficult to get into this space because normally, if you haven't got, if, if you haven't got a family member in the profession or family friends in the profession, or you don't sort of have like an all boy network, even with the best of grades, it can be really difficult to get that foot in the door. And we wanted to make it easy for our fellow practitioners or of African background and those who are coming through the rains so we started to see large numbers. Coming through law school, uh, to, you know, to be able to give them uh, you know, an opportunity uh, to get a that. pathway, correct for
2: African uh, law students and African law graduates. So there's a pathway in front of them to obtain employment, to obtain opportunities, and therefore um,
1: go on to affect things. And, and the network has is, is grown since, since we started it, and uh, we've, you know, we've had we had our massive launch last year. Case in chambers, uh, uh, just here off Lonsdale Street, uh, where uh, you know, members of the judiciary attended, uh, members of the profession attended, and about 150 guests. Uh, Justice Silphuris of the Supreme Court was our patron. We've also had places like the Parliament Premier Cabinet DBC offering our, our, our membership group, paid clerkship. Legal Aid recently jumped on board, and as, as we currently speak, you know, we've got four clerks uh, doing the clerkship.
2: So these are, these are law students doing
1: clerkships yes. in, the, in their holidays? Yes, so for law students, those, those who are also doing their Leo Cousins, so uh, doing their paid clerkship with Legal Aid, and Legal Aid was so impressed. Initially, with with three roles advertised, and they were so impressed with the sixth candidate they had shortlisted that they've created opportunities you know, for all six of them. Daniel, you volunteer in...
2: Community Legal Education, which supports youth in detention, and you also speak to high school students. Could you tell us a bit about that and why you do it?
1: In my current team, which I've seconded to, Youth Crime, it's part of our duties, you know, we, we're rostered to do Remind Duty, we should, uh, we're rostered to do a part field the duty, you know, which, which is a duty where a lawyer goes out uh, to the juvenile prison. And then we'll we'll check on on the kids who've who've been uh, recently reminded uh, and then we'll we'll sort of, we'll do a welfare chat. One of the most inspiring moments I've had, you know, on on one of those duties, you know, it was was a few weeks ago when when I walked in, there's groups and these kids and they're like, they're very surprised, you know, to see there's a black lawyer. So I think that's an important and, and very encouraging and, you know, some of these young kids, are, they're very bright, you know, if obviously they've made a mistake and find themselves, you know, on the wrong side of the law. Uh, but I think to see one of their community members or, or someone they can relate to you know, on the other side, uh, I think I think he's encouraging. That's part of the package of me moving to Melbourne, you know, to, if, if I'm in court, not only acting, you know, acting for Mr Smith as well, you know, as Mr Jack yeah. uh, that, you know, people in my community are also represented you know across the legal fraternity and obviously we've got a long way to go but I think uh for 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 young people you know and and also members of our community who who are all going through the system you know to be able to see people like me and others you know who's sort of starting to enter this space uh You'd hope, you know, it will give them some confidence and hope in the system, you know, that the system works for everyone and, you know, it doesn't in favour any particular group.
2: It's a remarkable story that you have and a remarkable journey that you've taken. Has this been a course that you've plotted and have you had a plan in your head you've worked through, maybe a plan initially started by your father and Abraham helping you as well? Have you worked strategically to a plan or... Have you just taken opportunities as they've come, such as your friend who suggested you go to apply for the scholarship at Prince Alfred College?
1: Well, look, I think the, the, the scholarship to Prince that was definitely uh, that wasn't part of the plan. But uh, once I was at Prince Alfred College, it was sort of drilled out like as a, a Prince man, you, you know, you, you had an obligation to to go to the world, into the community, and give back, you know, and sort of you know uh, go beyond the the, the education you receive at the school and that and that Prince's meant to... Uh, leaders, you know, and I think I've, I've, I've grasped that uh, since leaving the school uh, to really. Uh, so, moving to Melbourne, you know, it was, it was, it was all a strategic for me because I knew uh, that Melbourne was a bigger city uh, that the Sudanese and African population, you know, you know, it was a much more larger site compared to the million population of Adelaide. So, there's there definitely more work here, and, and, and the opportunities you know, were, were much more. Why so so and even gone to Legal Aid that was also strategic as well because there were the resources.
2: And is this strategy is it ultimately going to lead you to the bar, to become an advocate? Is that is that your
1: long term goal? Uh, that's what I see myself uh, down the track, uh, and well, I'm just going to work on that craft. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to be at a, an organisation like Legal Aid, which allows you uh, to prosper. In talking about your
2: plan and talking about your future, in my mind, it takes me back to your parents because the plan all started with your dad and he laid it out and your dad sounds a remarkable man, who a man of great um, stature within your community. Bring us up to date with your mum and dad. When did you last see them? What is happening with them now in South Sudan?
1: Mum recently graduated as well last year from, uh, from American University. That's, that's based in Bor uh, for uh, the Bachelor of... Uh, I think, theology and um, and community development. Dad's also busy as well, but, uh, you know, I think Dad are starting to have, to have, like, an eye problem. Myself and my sister, family members, have sort of putting in money to get that treatment sorted, but he's, you know, I think they're getting, uh, they're starting to age.
2: Your dad's um, occupation officially was as a diesel mechanic. He trained and qualified in that, and he worked in the camp, he worked as a, sanitation worker engineer. Is he working at his chosen trade of diesel engineer or diesel mechanic now back in South Sudan?
1: I'm told he works for for the the Department of Transport, uh, like within Bor, but in terms of, he's much more busy sort of running around courts back home, because even when I went back home on my first day, like when I arrived in Bor and I arrived at the family home, that wasn't home, He had been out since
2: and they, they hadn't seen you in 12 years? Yes.
1: I think he gets caught up in his work so much. I wasn't sure whether to take, take offence of that or not, but uh, he, he did eventually come right
2: To finish up, we'll come to a topic that is dear to the heart of all Australians and, of course, that's sport. Now, what you're really famous for, Daniel, is that your cousin, Thomas Deng, He's a professional soccer player with the Melbourne Victory.
1: Yes, he is.
2: Thomas was born in a camp as well?
1: Oh, I wouldn't, no, no, no. His family was affected by the war, but Thomas Thomas lived lived in Kenya, so he lived in Nairobi. That's that's where he was born, so he's- He dad, was
2: in the city of Nairobi, not in a camp.
1: His dad, I think his dad was a pharmacist. So, you know, he, he's had uh, he had a better, let's say he had a better upbringing <laughs> than I did. But he more more privilege maybe. I'm not sure he be better with
2: you. Your parents sound pretty special to me, so maybe he had more privilege than you. Correct.
1: Uh, so he uh, he grew up in Nairobi, but he but he he, he left him and his family migrated to Australia earlier than we did and settled in Adelaide uh, uh, with his mum. His, his dad remained in in, in in Nairobi, and his dad is passed since. Uh, but uh, our relationship with me, and Thomas, you know, it goes back. Uh, up until I was six, you know, because we're family from the same tribe. Thomas and a uh, couple of other cousins, uh, Emmanuel and, and and Peter, his older brother, and they used to come to our house in Greenacres and then we'll go to the local park and, and play mm-hmm. soccer. And I often say to my Australian friends, uh, had I been, had my parents and Abraham relaxed the rule of bits, so I would have been playing for Soccer you
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, it's it's an amazing story that you uh, have told and an amazing life you have lived and it's early days of that life. Thank you very much for your generosity in coming and telling us your story today and uh, we wish you the very, very best going forward with uh, your role in the African community, the Sudanese community and the Australian community.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Michael.
0: Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find useful links, a transcript of the show, and some wonderful shots of our guests. We're keen to know what you think, so please reach out via all the usual channels. Let us know the questions you'd like us to ask, topics you'd like explored, or ideas for future guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate, and review the show. It really helps others find out about us show is produced by me, Catherine Green, recorded and mixed by Alex McFarlane who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We are coming to you this week and every week from the iconic County Court of Victoria on the corner of William and Lonsdale streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue this discussion here today.